0: This episode is sponsored by Bevy. Bevy is the smart water cooler that offers still, sparkling, and flavored water on demand. With Bevy, your office could pay half of what it costs to stock bottled water and reduce its carbon footprint by saving thousands of bottles each year. To learn more about Bevy and get a custom quote, visit bevy.co offline. And this episode is also sponsored by Schneider Electric. ESG reporting can be overwhelming, repetitive, and time-consuming. Be a catalyst for smarter and easier ESG reporting with Resource Advisor by Schneider Electric. For more information, please visit resourceadvisor.com. And this episode includes a segment sponsored by the Verizon Climate Resilience Prize.
1: From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, inside the Black Resilience Network, the good news about climate tipping points, the state of animal-free materials, and why the controversy around plant-based meat may be missing the point. Nothing's um, impossible, this week on 350. It's March 31st, 2023. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. Heather Clancy is on assignment in London. So joining me in her stead this week is Green Biz Sustainability Analyst, Natha Rajendran. Uh, hey, Natha.
2: Hi, Joel. How are you? I'm so excited to be here today.
1: So great to have you. Um I think uh, you're sort of new and I think you are sort of new to the GreenBiz team. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Talk about, first of all, what do you do at GreenBiz, and maybe a little bit about where you came from?
2: Absolutely. Well, yeah, I joined GreenBiz in October of 2022, right before our big Verge conference. And before that, I had actually been an emerging leader with Green Biz's, um Emerging Leaders Program, which is a scholarship program for BIPOC. Uh, students and young professionals to attend the conferences. So I got to attend GreenViz in 2020, right before the pandemic hit. And then I had GreenViz on my radar for quite a bit and um, then eventually joined on as a sustainability analyst where I work very closely with Dylan Siegler on planning GreenBiz Net Zero, our upcoming conference in September, as well as our famous GreenBiz conference that happens every year in Arizona. Um, and a little bit about my background: I graduated from the University of Georgia in 2020 with a degree in MIS and geography. So I've always been really passionate about the intersection between sustainability and business. Um, But beyond that, I'm really passionate about grassroots movements, community organization, and amplifying Indigenous voices. I am a summer instructor at Brown University's pre-college program, where I teach about um the intersection of sustainability and indigenous perspectives and recently just finished a course in alaska there this past summer and i'm teaching another one in rhode island this upcoming summer so a lot to look forward to um and yeah i'm happy to answer any more questions but <laughs> well, looks like we have a lot to get into
1: <laughs> yeah we, we, before we get into uh, some of the stories from the week um Talk a little bit about what it's like coming from sort of the more community grassroots activist uh, world into this world of, of business and corporate sustainability.
2: Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Well, one thing is at a community level, you are working with scraps, to say the least. You don't have a lot of funding. A lot of the way that you get your activism out there and spread knowledge is through Genuine conversation and showing up with a box of pizza at a club meeting and and trying to get people to rally behind you and that was one of the biggest transitions that I had to grapple with when coming to GreenBiz because it's a company where people are joining in on the conversation intentionally. You're not trying to convince anyone to get on board. You're um, you're speaking to people who are really interested in the topic. So that was a huge difference that I had to to learn how to grow into. And also just the accessibility of resources and, and the accessibility to an audience that I mentioned previously is so eager. Um, but one thing community organization has taught me is to meet people where they are. I think that there's just there's so many people that care, but they just don't have the resources and the time to do so. So meeting people where they are and, and their sustainability journeys is so important.
1: Yeah. Wow. Well, we are so thrilled to have you as part of our amazing and growing team. So uh, it's it's just welcome to GreenViz. I know it's been months now, five months or so, four or five months, but um, uh, just really happy to have you and uh, lots to look forward to. But before we look forward, let's look back at the Week in Review.
2: Well, I'd love to start off with the article that you wrote um, entitled The Good News About Climate Tipping Points. So can you give us a little bit of background about that? I I was reading this article and it reminded me so much um, of project drawdown and some of the solutions that we're seeing in the market right now. But I'd love to have you to summarize a little bit about it.
1: Sure. This is, um, based on a report that came out, uh, not long ago, uh, called the breakthrough effect published by the uh, Bezos earth fund, uh, a, a company called systemic and the university of Exeter, sort of an interesting group of, of players here. And, uh, it, it, it describes, um, well, first of all, tipping points is a term when it comes to climate that is often referred to negative things. Uh, so, you know, things like the uh, what's called the albedo effect, um, where uh, you know in the Arctic where the sun uh, melts the, uh, the the ice covering and 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 that exposes more uh, uh, earth or more more water, which is allows the sun to absorb even more energy. Uh, into the earth, and um, and it sort of becomes a, an effect that sort of becomes self-sustaining, uh, and and it, it leads to some uh, uh, just self-reinforcing kinds of, of activities that are suffice to say not good. And there's a whole bunch of them. There's six or eight or ten of those that are really critical around biodiversity and and, and some other uh, aspects of of ecological systems. This report. Talks about the positive tipping points, so it looks particularly at, at not just at technologies, but a lot of it is technology-based. Um, you know, how do you uh, how do these uh, changes in society, in technologies, in consumer habits, in 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 just the infrastructure, start to you know be, similarly have become a, a self-reinforcing system? Uh, we're already on the verge of, of two of those. Well, one of them I think we've already reached, which is in the electricity sector, and and one's very close in road transport, as we see the uh, now sort of tipping point uh, again of of the or at least the uptake of electric vehicles. Uh, but they talk about in this report uh, a, a bunch of others, and, and and some of them are you know well known to to you know anybody who's uh, in sustainability or or paying attention to to a lot of these. Um, things like, you know, well, obviously energy or alternative proteins. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Heat pumps. You've been seeing a lot about that. Um, and so uh, just, you know, we, we saw the IPCC report, I guess it was last week. Uh, you know, another one of these, you know, part of this drumbeat of just really discouraging and bad and, and terrifying news. Uh, I like this because it's good news about tipping points that, um talking about things where, how do we get through this? And it looks like, you know, there is a path and and that just was very, very encouraging. Were you encouraged about by this? What was your takeaway, Nathra?
2: Yeah, it was definitely interesting to see tipping points framed as a positive factor rather than a negative. I almost had to reread that a couple of times because I'm so used to the doom and gloom behind the word tipping points. But it brings up the great point that industries are interconnected and negative or positive changes in one industry can profoundly impact other industries. Like sustainability is never isolated and honestly has solutions in so many unlikely places. As I mentioned before, I felt like this document really reminded me. and almost was like the sister document to Project Drawdown. And I remember when reading Project Drawdown, one of the top solutions was educating girls And I remember thinking, that's interesting. How does that directly impact climate? But then upon reading it, um, educating women can impact population size and that community can impact um, solution-oriented aspects of that community because women really can provide such a pillar and uplifting sense to their direct, um, direct community. So you think about these unlikely solutions and how they can impact other parts of climate and the climate crisis. And, you know, we have the solutions, so why are we not implementing them? And I think it boils down to some of the factors mentioned in the section, you know, referring to enabling the conditions for these tipping points, such as affordability, attractiveness, accessibility, you know, but also like policy change and social hesitation and community adoption. So, yeah, I really enjoyed how the document had that sector by sector breakdown of solutions and also incorporated those aspects of affordability, accessibility, attractiveness in context of each sector solution and tipping point.
1: Yeah, before we move on, just one example, because some of these things are like, you know, electric cars we know, uh, solar and wind that we know. But what about ammonia? I mean, ammonia is uh is a is a is a key uh, part of uh, fertilizers which is how we've managed to feed the world so success- relatively successfully certainly uh, more so uh, than than a few generations ago uh, but you know the, the the fertilizers are responsible for little, you know about a percent and a half of annual carbon dioxide emissions um and then there's the runoff uh, from from fertilizers uh, from farmland into streams and creeks and ultimately in rivers and lakes and all of that that feed uh, algal blooms and release methane and all kinds of things. So you know in this breakthrough report, you know they talk about how optimizing fertilizer use could could cut emissions by seventy percent, or at least emissions from fertilizers or, or it, for, by seventy percent a number of different things, and then it talks about green ammonia, which is produced when wind-powered chemical plants, or blue ammonia, where the carbon emissions are captured during the production process are sequestered. It, I just found that really interesting. That some of these things really come down to one aspect of 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 agriculture in this case, um, and we don't necessarily think about those. Certainly, the average citizen doesn't is tuned into this. So. Yeah, uh, some you know some good news, and uh, at least potentially if we can get our act together and get going on these things. But I want to turn to two stories now, Nathra, that uh, I think may be near and dear to you, and they have to they have to do with uh, alternatives to animal uh, products. The uh, one one in uh, plant based meat, and the other in animal free materials. Um, so let's start with the the meat one. It, it's a piece by Matt DeGroiter, I think is how you say his last name. He's the co-founder and CEO of Next Level Burger, which uh, I I admit I'm not familiar with, but apparently um, now has uh, has ten restaurants uh, that are are cropping up, um, and so it's a a growing company. But you know, talk about the fact that um, the alternative protein. we may have already reached you know, peak uh, uh, alternative protein or plant-based meat, um, and um, but he says, no, that's not the case. So it talks a little bit about the market conditions, but I know this is in your uh, wheelhouse here. So talk a little bit about uh, what this vegan burger chain CEO found and, and how you see it.
2: Yes. For those listening, this is something that's really near to my heart. Um, I'm really passionate about animal rights. And not only that in, um, about a year ago in January, 2022, I went plant-based, so still working on my journey, but also really excited to see that Matt DeGruder wrote this article because I'm, well, I'm Atlanta native, but Brooklyn transplant living there for, um, a couple months now. And I go to next level burger all the time. The one in (laughs) the one in the Fort green whole foods. So if you're ever there, you'll see me there, um, my go-to order is the ghost pepper popper burger. And my friends always get the spicy stacked chicken burger. So i um, pretty familiar. And yeah, I think this was a really interesting point of view because we've been seeing the headlines that, you know, plant-based meats are on a decline and, and, and veganism. Is it the new fad type situation? Um, and I have to say, I mean, I can see that there is a lot of hesitation around plant-based meats. While there has been an adoption of it as well, I think that for a lot of people, when transitioning to plant-based alternatives, there are are two types of people that do so. There are people that do it for purpose, um, for example, like health, animal rights, well-being, like animal rights and well-being, climate change. Um, there are people that you know, dabble in and eating plant-based foods for that reason. And then ultimately for those who, who don't align with purpose, it's going to be taste that drives the industry forward at verge 2023. I sat down at a round table, discussion about plant-based meats hosted by impossible foods. And it was a very candid conversation about the barriers to getting people to switch. And a lot of times food and especially meat and flavor like that is really tied not only around culture and identity, but, you know, re- about the memories and and the taste that come along with, with such foods. So I think there has to be um, a big attention paid to taste, which I think um, maybe I'm a little biased here, but next level burger does pretty well. Um, <laughs> but also a way to integrate that into people's lives and culture. Um, and I think there needs to be less of an emphasis on converting people to veganism and more of an emphasis on encouraging meat minimalism in all settings which I think the plant based industry is trying to shift towards to so not only being not only replacing meat but giving people the opportunity to have that as an option so they can go towards that naturally um because I know a lot of people that you know Label themselves as vegans often fall out of that really fast because they feel confined to that. So, I've I've been thinking about it as meat minimalism because a few people doing this perfectly has less of an impact of than many people doing it imperfectly. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah. So the uh, the alternatives to to meat are, are are seem to be steady and growing. But I'm wondering, you know, you're you, as you said, you live in in Brooklyn now where you've got a next level burger, uh, you know, within a stone's throw of, of, of where you are. Um, and now you're, you're back in Atlanta where you, you grew up and where your family is when you travel uh, to place, let's just, you know, take Atlanta. Are there options there? Are they readily available or is this more of a Brooklyn or, you know, California thing?
2: You know, you'd be surprised. So an Atlanta native pinky Cole is actually one of the pioneers in the vegan space. She, started um really popular chain called Slutty Vegan as well as Bar Vegan and she's um actually expanded her locations to Harlem and Brooklyn. Um but yeah, there are tons of alternatives available, but um as someone who's been plant-based, I actually prefer whole food vegan um options like, you know, quinoa and vegetable patties versus meat alternatives. Um but not to say that I don't indulge in those and I have a lot of friends that do, but I think it's, you know, the plant-based journey looks different for everyone. But for those who came off of heavy meat eating, I think plant-based meats are a great option for them.
1: Yeah. Well, let's move over to to a different but similar topic, which is animal-free materials. Uh, This is a piece by our very own Suze Oki, who's the Director of Design Strategy and Senior Analyst in the Circular Economy here at Green Biz Group. Uh, And she talks uh, about... um, the fact that the investments in a lot of these materials and the materials used by uh, uh, she, she talks about Stella McCartney and and a, and a company that, uh, not too far from me here in Emeryville, California, called Bolt Threads. That investment in companies like that are on the decline, uh, at least after years of of growth. Um, and uh, but uh, she said their investments are down, but the industry isn't out. Um, uh, I'm wondering. First of all, uh, just <laughs> at a personal level, uh, you're you're uh, vegan now uh, in your in your food selection. D- does that extend uh, to materials? And when you when you shop for apparel or footwear, um, uh, is that do those things tend to go hand in hand? How does that work for you?
2: Um, for me, absolutely yes. I think that you vote with your dollar. So every dollar that I believe I spend, I'm investing in a purpose. And that's how I view it. So I definitely try to keep all of my products that I purchase animal-free, cruelty-free, and vegan. Um, and surprisingly, it's it's not that hard as people might think. Um, it's just about understanding labels. Everyone's seen that Hopping Bunny, the certified uh, cruelty-free, but also understanding um, that cruelty-free doesn't always mean vegan or sorry, vegan doesn't always mean cruelty-free. So something can be vegan, but also be tested on animals. So it's understanding those labels and also looking at companies that are doing the alternatives well. And, and that can be a challenge, I, I will say, but not as challenging as people might think.
1: Now, one of the topics in this article that Sue's wrote um, is, is the, I guess the fear of greenwashing uh, that could uh, sort of hold back this industry uh, early on. And, you know, how, she uh, talked about unreal expectations, um, you know, That people have around performance and aesthetics, but also, uh, you know, that there's a lot of people are quick to call out things that aren't perfect. By the way, just a quick aside uh, we at Greenbiz, along with many, probably, you know, probably the majority of publications, certainly in the United States, uh, subscribe to something called the AP Stylebook, the Associated Press uh, Stylebook, which is how we decide how you spell things and certain grammar use at the conventions. And uh, just just, uh, this week, uh, we got a notice that the AP Stylebook has added a bunch of climate change-related topics, and now greenwashing is one of those uh, terms that's now in official use. And so it it, it just again part of this drumbeat of uh, of growth uh, of that topic, or at least uh, in the public sphere. Um, so yeah, I mean, is when you look at the, at the claims companies are making, they throw a uh, you know, do you see the companies are saying one thing and, and doing another? How rampant is greenwashing in the uh, animal-free material space?
2: I think it really depends on the company and the mission behind it. Um, for example, in the, da- in the down alternative space, there is a high...
1: So there's alternatives to down, the, the goose down or whatever, duck yes. or whatever the... Yeah, so they turned it. Go ahead. I just want to make sure what people knew what down alternative space was
2: absolutely well yeah in in the luxury space there is a company called save the duck and they do um great work in that space but then alternatively you know you see companies like shein maybe putting out fake leather products or vegan leather alternatives and you know those are plastic based pleather so people will then turn the eye and say well you know this is plastic it's still polluting the environment and I think one thing that Sue did a good job of pointing out is no product is going to be perfectly sustainable. But when we look at the overall net impact, pleather to an extent, depending on how it's produced, again, I'm not an expert, but it I can already understand that it might have a lesser impact in terms of um, carbon footprint and well-being of animals, because again, it's animal free. And then we all know the sort of land impact, water impact, deforestation impact that raising uh, cattle has on our, on our planet. So when we think about the chemicals used in pleather, it's not much different than the chemicals used to cure leather. So you really have to break it down at a granular level and, and see what that means. But people are quick to point fingers in the industry, especially because there is, um, a high spotlight on on fast fashion right now, and, and just materials and and stuff like that in general. So yeah, you can you can get really, it, it tends to get controversial as we've as we've seen.
1: Pretty much like everything else in the sustainability space. So uh, I guess uh, you know what can the the, the animal free materials space learn from the as going back to the previous story from the from the vegan or uh, meat meat alternative space um do you see any any parallels there in terms of you know getting public buy-in uh, scaling the solutions from the from the business side uh you know uh, just getting people past their their habits and then of course you know getting things to price parity um is there anything that we can learn from what we've seen with uh next level and impossible and other and other alternatives to to animal based meat
2: i think it really revolves around quality so from two perspectives in terms of the product that people are getting and then in terms of the purpose that people are doing it for so in terms of the product i think it's really about quality like trying to match what people already know leather to be what people already know burgers to be um and i think you know just speaking on next level burger like they've really tried to mimic like the taste and experience that you get from eating a traditional burger and then when i look at companies like save the duck doing down alternatives or, you know, Aritzia having vegan leather, they've tried to really mimic the quality aspect. And that's what people are drawn to at the end of the day. Um, When it comes from a purpose perspective, I think that there is something to be said about not shaming people. When people feel shamed around their decisions, they're just going to be like, throw their hands up, what's the point? You know, cows die anyways, like these these products already exist. But when you really lead with purpose and the why behind why you're trying to get people to buy into something like this, I think that is what makes the real difference. Because for example, pleather, yeah, plastic is never good for the environment, but it is providing an alternative um, As a suffer-free alternative and a cruelty-free alternative to um, to something that we have in our society, you know, like some, like animal products that we have in our society all the time. So when I think about it from that perspective, I'd rather buy into something that, um, you know, if it's going to have a carbon footprint anyways, at least it's not harming um, an animal. Is how I look at it. So emphasizing that purpose and. And um, those and and the good and positive reasons behind a product, I think, is is more powerful than we think it is.
0: During 2022, there were 18. climate and extreme weather disasters causing more than one billion dollars in damage across the United States. As the headlines tell us, these sorts of events are becoming more common and they are often particularly devastating to communities of color. The Black Resilience Network was created to disrupt that cycle and help Black communities become more involved in planning and in creating programs to improve their climate resilience. To chat more about its mission and work, I'm joined by one of the co-founders of the network, Atia Martin, who is CEO and founder of the consulting firm, All Aces, and also executive director of the nonprofit Next Leadership Development. Welcome to the podcast.
3: Thank you so much, Heather, for having me. I appreciate you. It is my pleasure.
0: Atia, you wear a lot of
3: hats.
0: (laughs) I'd love to start with an elevator pitch about the Black Resilience Network and its mission. So like, give me a little little bit about the backstory.
3: Most definitely. So it actually, the idea uh, really formed organically out of a convening that happened last year uh, where a group of Black women in emergency management were brought together. and. We were getting to know each other and talking about some of the challenges. um, And it stayed in the back of my mind, a lot of the issues that were brought up. And at the same time, um, my uh, nonprofit, we were working with a woman uh, who was the Mm -hmm. town manager for Historic Black Town, one of the first historic Mm -hmm. black towns in Oklahoma called Tullahassee, Oklahoma. And we worked with her on creating the first interactive uh, map that's publicly available of historic black towns and as we were uncovering the stories of these black towns which we were able to find over 80 in the united states where we could get concrete information to be able to map and tell a story um, the environmental justice intersections uh, played out in a number of those towns Um, And then as you look at where these towns are situated, a number of them are also disproportionately impacted by climate change. Um, And then uh, as I uh, began to talk to folks and have these conversations, I'm traveling around the country, uh, it we became clear uh, to me and uh, in conversation with folks, a lot of collaborators and and folks who were part of the thinking over time um, that we needed to have some focus on uh, black communities and help to reframe the way people think about black communities and the role they play. So oftentimes people definitely don't think about black towns, then these historic black towns, which there are almost 30 that still exist today and Uh, People definitely don't oftentimes see black people as leaders in their own, in this instance, uh, resilience, right, in their own climate and disaster resilience. Oftentimes there is money that goes to do things to black communities, but not necessarily to organizations and people and towns who are actually uh, part of the redundancy um, principle of resilience and have been filling in the gaps that have been left by government and so by default there are these invisible parts of climate and disaster resilience Um, and so being able to reach out to folks and start to have these Um, more structured conversations to see if folks wanted to get together, at least to be part of a founding group, we can take our expertise and experiences and start to um, uh, frame out some opportunities for collaboration. So there's the accountability piece, but there's also the collaboration piece because the policy change in order for it to translate into real action in people's day-to-day lives requires collaboration and commitment over a long period of time. So that's what this is about. How do we uh, collaborate in the long term with federal government, with corporations, with other um, uh, organizations so that we can um, really ha- support Black-led organizations and communities across the country?
0: So that is, wow. There's First of all, I want to see that map because I'm always trying to plan new road trips and and vacation spots. And I would love to go to some of those places. Um it feels like there should be a book, you know, a, a vacation book that really points to those places because it would be great for those communities. That's an aside and a totally different conversation. But just to go back to uh, the, the mission. So is the, is the network specifically focused on improving resilience in those places or generally speaking in other communities, regardless of whether it's in one of those historic places?
3: in black communities writ large so black towns um so we wanted to amplify their presence and existence um while we're also talking about um these uh areas across the country where there are high concentrations of black people yeah
0: so why is it important to include the communities and the frontline people in these in these climate resilience and disaster recovering planning discussions like are they just just have not been included in the past Is, is that what the case is
3: yes thank you for asking that because i think um, it's a good foundational question um like why why are we doing this Um, and i think part of this um really is related to social justice Um, so when we think about social justice we're really talking about the people who are most impacted or, I refer to them as the context experts. They are, they are the experts on what's happening on the ground. And in many instances, they're also content experts. They also have had to become experts in technical areas in order to fill a number of gaps, whether it's on the climate change side, whether it's disaster re- resilience or climate um, or disaster response. They have built this expertise on both the context and on the content side of the house. So in absence of that context expertise, anything that we do will never have the kind of sophisticated um, approaches that align with the complexities of people's realities. And at a more fundamental level, when we're talking about human beings and the way oppression works. One of the consistent patterns of oppression, regardless of what kind it is, big capital S system oppression, like racism, sexism, classism, or oppressive ways of being, Um, there's this consistent pattern of people not having a voice or choice in the things happening to them. And whenever institutions do that, it's actually a special kind of trauma, a different kind of trauma um, called institutional betrayal. And it impacts people um, in so many different ways. But ultimately, we're talking about a institutions that have decision-making power. They decide where resources go. Um, they, at some point, there was a level of trust. And through uh, repeated actions have caused harm. But you don't have the opportunity to opt out of the relationship. Mm.
0: So what does it look like? for a community to have a voice or a choice. So can you give me an example of a place or an engagement in which there is a healthy collaboration happening?
3: Yes, and I actually uh, think this is related to the February 28th event we had in collaboration Uh, with the DHS Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Mm. Um, So the Climate Resilience Roundtable um, is an example of convening people who are making decisions about resources going into communities and giving them very concrete, practical ways to think about the work and to collaborate on the work. Um, and so we had 24 uh, Black Resilience Network uh, members or people representing representing um, organizations um, who were able to share their experiences across a number of different priority areas. And it is through sharing the experiences and then connecting it to these practical frameworks and approaches that these organizations are used to hearing that help them to see a broader landscape of action, broader landscape of uh, opportunities for collaboration um, and seeing the uh, black communities, towns, organizations as really partners in this, as opposed to uh, the folks we are going to save. Mm -hmm.
0: So what's the, uh, yeah, so like that round table, which I was going to ask about, so thank you for bringing it up. What are the what was the sort of result of the roundtable? Is there a, a an ongoing dialogue? Is there some are there some calls to action? What's what's happening based on on that gathering? Yes.
3: Thank you for that. So there are two things, um, two categories, I should say. One category are the priority areas that we laid out. Um so within each priority area, we also talked about specific approaches that uh stakeholders who are making investments in climate and disaster resilience that they can do um, or that should be shifted. The second bucket of things were, here are things that we as the Black Resilience Network, as a coalition of organizations are taking on to say, we are going to lead this work and we would love to collaborate on leading this work. For example, um a number of our members talked about the roles that they've had to play after disasters to um, get resources to communities who were being passed over, to coordinate um, their own uh, relationships, uh, what folks would refer to as mutual aid, this is like mutual aid at like a national scale practically, uh, to get resources in communities and to alert the federal agencies like, you know they need help over here. Now all of that was being done in this very disparate way. Some folks over here were doing it, some folks over there were doing it. So we we decided that we needed to start a black emergency operations center. And that instead of kind of trying to do this in an ad hoc way that we would leverage emergency management infrastructure and approaches to coordinate resources and information and act as a uh, amplifier of what was happening on the ground and to help um, support getting those resources to folks um, in communities. So that's something we said, we're gonna take that on. We're gonna leverage our existing infrastructure. We're gonna figure out how to get resources to um, shift the things we need to shift to actually translate this into reality. And let's so let's partner on that. Um, so those types of very concrete, Opportunities for collaboration.
0: So the the you'll be doing that like in collaboration
3: with FEMA or DHS or whatever the appropriate so agency we'll, is. <laughs> How yes. do I do know. So so we will um, we'll still work out the details, but we are going to operate it independently um, and partner with FEMA. Um, or getting information to them as we're getting information from folks on the ground, Um, supporting uh, the organizations who are trying to get information and resources. We also recognize that there's um, a training component to this. There are some trainings that uh, communities need to help community members to navigate FEMA applications and things like that. Um, There's also... uh, And some of those things you can do in advance, but there's also times where there's just just just-in-time trainings needed. Um, And so for those just-in-time trainings, being able to help coordinate those with partners so that folks can get what the the information they need um, in a way that uh, it meets their immediacy, what they're dealing with in the immediacy. So that's kind of a... a, um, example, I say one more example of an initiative that actually relates to um, your question about the historic black towns and settlements. Um, There's actually a uh, an important part of the resilience work um, that centers around um, cultural heritage preservation. Um, And so it's both a related to how we think about the ways that climate change impacts the preservation of what we already have and how we build infrastructure to protect um, those things, uh, including land, but also the relationship it has to economic resilience. So when we are able to uh, make sure that these places across the country, historic black towns, places in historic, uh, in communities, um, black communities and urban areas all across the country, that we're able to show, uh, create almost a um, black historic corridor we're able to kind of have that cultural tourism um, where we're coordinating with one another um, and doing exactly what you're talking about is how people get connected to this history while also trying to make sure that it's nationally recognized on the Federal Register um, in a way that is uh, that isn't each individual site having to register, that we can have a, a one-time push to get these places recognized as well as some funding.
0: Fantastic. That is just so needed for the the U.S. at large to understand that history. I think that's awesome. So excited to hear more about that in the future. I have one last question for you that's sort of specific to my audience, right? So these people who listen to this are corporate sustainability professionals. They're people that have money at, at their companies. They should obviously be centering environmental justice in their strategy, But how could a corporation, a business, small or large, work with uh, the Black Resilience Network or support the work that you're talking about
3: here? So there are a few ways. So one is, let me say this, that we are happy to partner with corporations who have institutional courage or willing to be true allies in this work. And institutional courage is actually... Uh, what researchers kind of counter institutional uh, betrayal or institutional betrayal trauma with. And it's this idea that we um, are able to be in mutually reinforcing relationships, that we're able to um, collaborate um, on Ways to improve the work that uh, we're doing and that corporations are doing. So, for example, you mentioned this: uh, many corporations have ESG work that they're doing, or they have corporate sustain uh, corporate um, responsibility work that they're organizing. And so, we would love to partner with organizations on funding. Is a basic level, like that's the that's a transactional level, but and also in in terms of the resources, um, like products and services for community-led climate and disaster resilience efforts. So whether it's, um, there's a service that folks provide that can help uh, some of the initiatives that we're trying to move forward, or um, there's a, a series of products in particular that folks think would be helpful to support disaster responses. So those some concrete examples, but ultimately looking for um, a deeper relationship with organizations who really want to partner in this work and support Black leadership.
0: Well, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I wish I could keep asking you questions, but I'm really over time, so I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much,
3: Atiyah. Thank you, I appreciate you, Heather.
0: You just heard from Atia Martin, who's CEO and founder of All Aces, executive director of Next Leadership Development, and also the co-founder of the Black Resilience Network. In early March, Verizon opened nominations for the second Climate Resilience Prize, an initiative intended to help scale solutions that use 5G-enabled technologies to address climate-related impacts on vulnerable communities. To coordinate the competition, Verizon is partnering with Resilient Cities Network, a global nonprofit representing close to 100 cities dedicated to strengthening urban resilience. GreenBiz is another partner for the program, and four winners will be announced later this year at our Verge conference in San Jose, California. Joining me to chat about the prize and the critical need to shore up climate resilience for at-risk communities. Are Carrie Hughes, Director of Social Innovation for Verizon, and Lorian Farrell, North America Regional
4: Director for Resilient Cities Network. Hello to both of you. Welcome to Greenbiz 350. Hello. Oh. Hi, Heather. Great to be here today. Thanks so much for having us. It's my
0: pleasure. Carrie, let's level set. Please start by telling us about Verizon strategy in general for supporting social innovation and its mission of tapping next-gen technology to advance climate protection.
4: Absolutely, thanks, Heather. So um, at Verizon, it all starts with our responsible business plan, which we call Citizen Verizon. And that plan is really all about leveraging the power of technology to enable economic, environmental and social advancement. Um, And really, you know, why we have such a focus on that, uh, you know, we're a tech company and we at Verizon know that technology can solve many of our world's most pressing challenges. And this obviously includes climate change. And that's a very important focus area for us within Citizen Verizon because we know that the most vulnerable communities are unfortunately also the communities that are most adversely impacted by climate change. Um, But what's exciting is at the same time, there are so many innovative climate tech solutions being developed to address these challenges. So we know uh, that within our portfolio of programs, we want to have programs that support entrepreneurs and startups who are working on these tech-based climate solutions and reaching those vulnerable populations. So, with this in mind, you know, we decided last year to partner with Greenbiz to launch the first Verizon Climate Resilience Prize. And happily that went so well that a few weeks ago we announced that we are going to do a year two of this prize. Again, in partnership with Greenbiz. So thank you, Greenbiz, and also a new partner, Resilient Cities Network. Um, so, you know, about the prize itself, I'll talk a little bit later about the application process and such, but just to give folks a high-level idea about what it is and what it's about. So as I sort of mentioned, our goal is to really focus on identifying startups who have on the ground solutions in communities that leverage 5G enabled technologies um, and address climate related impacts specifically uh, for vulnerable populations. Uh, and I'm always asked, you know, what exactly is 5G? I know we hear a lot about it um, in commercials and all over the place, but what it is really is stands for fifth generation technology it's really describing the wireless technology that's out there today um, that's being rolled out that is very high bandwidth and low latency. So what that means, it can support really cool solutions um, like big data and all the great things that big data brings and instant response times and really cool things like machine learning and responsible AI and augmented reality and all these really cool um. Solutions that you hear about, and we think those solutions have a place in solving for these issues. And so, um, we're looking for those those kinds of technologies in the prize. Uh, we do ask that the solutions be ready to scale, so they're kind of developed and ready ready to just go broader. And at the end of the day, we'll be um, awarding four winners, one hundred twenty five thousand dollars each, plus counseling and guidance for uh, a grand total of five hundred thousand. In support. And just really excited about this opportunity that, you know, we hope the prize will bring to help solve the climate crisis in vulnerable communities.
0: I'm so glad you gave some of those examples. That's really helpful. And I'm, I'm very curious because, you know, the Resilient Cities Networks, I'd like to, excuse me, the Resilient Cities Network. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that, uh, Lorian. Um, Tell us about the mission and then, okay, why did, Do you decide to partner with Verizon on this
5: prize? Sure. Thanks, Heather. Um, Thank you for having me here with you today. So the Resilience Cities Network is a global network of 100 cities, um, and we support our chief resilience officers in each of those cities to build resilience capacity. Um, Resilience, as we define it, is really holistic. It, It could be any facet of life, right? So it could be climate, which is a main pillar of ours. It could be economic empowerment. It could be equity, health, you name it. I mean, after the the pandemic was a perfect example of why we need to tackle our challenges in a holistic way and not in silos. And so we really support our cities um, to be able to just create the systems, put the systems in place, mobilize resources um, for them to be able to allow their cities to survive any shock or stress and not only survive, but to adapt and thrive in the face of shocks and stresses. And you know the, the Verizon prize is um, a great fit for us because as I said, one of our main pillars is climate. Um, and we wanna be able to make sure that we mobilize resources to our cities and they cannot do this work alone, and so it's great to have a partner like Verizon at the table um, to work through some of these challenges together, as opposed to everyone being off and trying to come up with their own solutions. So collectively, um, we, we should be able to move the needle on these existential threats that cities are they're facing right now. So at the network, we, we really focus on building partnerships and connecting our cities to each other for peer-to-peer learning and, and providing thought partnership, all with that goal of making sure that we build resilience. And don't forget, as Carrie had said, about the most vulnerable in our populations because we know those are the people that are going to be the most impacted by these threats.
0: Yeah, Carrie did underscore that, that importance. Um, can you provide some examples of why that makes a difference? So why is it so important to, to work with these under-resourced frontline communities, um, especially on climate resilience?
5: You know it's really really, really interesting. I used to, I have a background of, of city government. I worked in cities um, and it was always uh, the narrative that we needed to figure out how to get the community to trust us more. We were city experts. We knew what we were doing. You know, we've gone to school all these years and have these technical expertise and, but people just don't trust us. And then one day uh, when I was working in, in res- started working in resilience, I had, I heard one of the chief resilience officers say, we need to start trusting people. Right, so it's it's the other way around. We need to go out and we need to listen to them and we need to believe their answers. When they tell us they need X solution or Y intervention, we shouldn't be telling them, no, you don't, we have a better idea, right? Um, And so by actually working with the communities, we're actually being able to get the outcomes where we're looking for the whole time that are more relevant to people, that the the, the, the people in the communities believe in, they accept, they become stewards of the of the of the um, interventions of the projects. Um, <clears throat> ultimately, people know what they need. They may not know how to mobilize the resources or they may not understand which what is the latest policy that was just passed, you know in government that will that needs to be unlocked. and that's where we come in to support with some of that. but we have found that our most effective work is done in coordination or in collaboration with the city, with the communities themselves.
0: Awesome. Brilliant. Thank you very much for that. Carrie, you mentioned um, one of the aims of the prize is to find solutions that could scale, right? And that you're going to help startups scale them. I'm just curious, you know, to the point about resilience in general, you you could see this, you know, helping underscore economic resilience. So how else does supporting these startups really benefit the communities in which they're based?
4: Yeah, so we really do look for... startups that are working on the ground in communities. And that we think there's really several benefits to that. Um, These solutions really are all about strengthening that community's climate resilience infrastructure, which is the point of what we are trying to do. Um, And so if the prize can help them scale those solutions in that community, then it's all goodness that they can reach and help more people in those communities, especially those vulnerable populations from these impacts. So, it just makes sense. And so, for example, in our first year of the Climate Prize, one of our winners was a company named Hi-Fi. And they just, they make simply tech for floods. Uh, That includes uh, sensors that do stormwater monitoring, watershed planning, flood response, and those kinds of um, resilience activities. Um, So, In the Cleveland metro area, which is one of the communities in which they work, uh, hi Tech is helping municipal managers maximize the performance of their infrastructure by specifically revealing which portions of the city's infrastructure are in the most need of being upgraded. Similarly, um, still in their neck of the woods in Michigan, hi tools are used to monitor critical roadways and community locations for flooding because the same roads in the same areas get flooded time after time. And so what their tech is able to do is send real-time notifications uh, to first responders to really you know, be aware immediately of the situation. So by winning the prize, um, it really helped HiFi to scale their operations in those areas. So going deeper into Cleveland, uh, Michigan, and now even into Ohio, And they have plans to continue growing. So you can see how the prize really helps the startups to scale, which in turn benefits the communities and the impacted populations that can benefit from their technology.
0: Great examples. Laurian, can you also offer some perspective on how tech powered uh, climate solutions could benefit communities at risk? I mean, we talk about solutions and solutions mean many things. This is obviously specifically about how, technology and 5G technologies can really unlock. What's your perspective on this?
5: Oh, I think the sky's the limit. Tech could support cities and communities in every facet of of city systems. Um, One of the challenges that we have as city practitioners is having, staying on top of the latest technologies, um, really knowing what's out there. And then there's, you know, complicated procurement processes. You don't want to spend public dollars on tech that may not meet your needs in two years, three years. So I think having a prize like the Verizon Climate Prize is really helpful for practitioners like me who are looking um, but don't really know where the best place is to invest and having an endorsement of um, a tech solution like this is really helpful. Um, Also, I think that technologies are really sophisticated these days, right? And so in resilience, we talk about making sure that we look for co-benefits in everything we do. And tech is really, really perfectly positioned to provide multiple benefits. As Carrie was giving with the Hi-Fi example, you know, it's a flood tech that can also be used to support emergency management. Um, In Dallas, the city of Dallas, they have, um, they're now utilizing technology on their light poles. So because they had installed LED light poles, that was, sort the, of the intervention that allowed them to then go and install um, air quality monitors on those poles and to also provide Wi-Fi for the community around, you know, within the vicinity of those poles. Um, so taking something like a traditional old light standard, which, you know, we wanted to update anyway because of the, the climate impacts, but then also harnessing that opportunity to, to infuse more tech into the community and have multiple benefits. So, you know, these are things that are really great for communities. They're also really great for cities because, you know, you're finding for every dollar you're spending, you're really getting a dollar forty, dollar eighty benefit out of that by being able to look for these multiple functions.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So I'm gonna, Carrie, you've already pretty thoroughly discussed the next gen technology. That's and why it's so important in this in this prize and and in in the path forward. I'm going to ask each of you a uh, sort of as a wrap up for a call to action. Um, Lorian, I'm going to start with you, a, a call to action for those that you would hope would apply uh, or for just others uh, that want to work with your organization. Uh, what would you say to startups or others?
5: Oh, I would say that your idea is amazing. And, and, Make sure you apply so that we know about it. I think that there are just there are just so many ideas out there that we just don't get to see, and we need to see them so that then we can start to figure out how to infuse those into, like I said, the procurement channels of in cities, like to get those products to market, and then we can start um, improving people's lives right away. So I would just say, don't hesitate. Just if you have an idea, apply and let let people know about it. Great, right.
0: Carrie. How can they apply and what, are, what other important criteria should they know? You, you outlined some of the, some of the um, re, you know, requirements earlier, but uh, bring it home for us.
4: No, I think uh, Lorian said it so well. I mean, we're really excited to get applications, so please apply. They are open now. <clears throat> you can find them on our website or Google Verizon Climate Resilience Prize. The, the uh, application period does close on April 23rd, and I just want to highlight again: it's it's not just the funding of 125,000 to four winners, but we're so excited this year about the um, the consulting and the business support that will also go along um, as part of the award to each of the four winners, which we really feel is just as valuable for these startups as the money is, right? Because scaling can have lots of challenges. So very excited about that and looking forward to getting uh, a lot of applications this year. Very excited about it.
0: Well, thanks to both of you for joining the podcast today. Thank you.
4: Thank you so much,
5: Heather.
0: You just heard from Carrie Hughes, Director of Social Innovation for Verizon, and Lorian Farrell, North America Regional Director for Resilient Cities Network.
1: And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the stories and organizations we mentioned this week. And while you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. We've got seven or eight of them now. It's a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We'd love to hear from you. Your comments, questions, and tips, hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather Clancy and I will be back next week with another edition of Greenbiz 350. Thanks again to Nathra Rejeandron for sitting in this week. Until then, from all of us here at Greenbiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. This episode is
0: sponsored by Bevvy. Bevvy Smart Water Coolers offer 15 natural flavors and enhancements that you can mix and match, keeping you hydrated without compromise. And did we mention they've replaced over 300 million bottles and cans to date? To learn more about Bevy and get a custom quote, visit bevy.co slash greenbiz. And this episode is also sponsored by Schneider Electric. Alleviate frustrations in ESG data management and reporting with Ecostructure Resource Advisor. Insights for impact. For more information, please visit resourceadvisor.com. And this episode also includes a segment sponsored by the Verizon Climate Resilience Prize.